Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Allison Renna. I'm a PhD candidate in Religion and Modernity and the History of Science at Yale University. Today, I'm interviewing Donovan Schaefer, Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania, about his book, Wild Experiment, Feeling Science and Secularism After Darwin, which was just released from Duke University Press. Donovan has a sharp eye for noticing the role affect, or emotion, plays in shaping the kinds of interpretation we find circulating in social life. Wild Experiment is about emotional experiences that characterize thinking itself in areas we sometimes think to be distinct, science and religion and conspiracy theory. In this interview, Donovan will tell us more about the emotion in knowing. So without further ado, I bring you to Donovan's office where we had our conversation on a hot August morning in Philadelphia. So Donovan, my first question for you is, how did the problems that are framing this book arise for you? Uh, Yeah, so I guess the first thing I would say is that, as you might know, I'd written an earlier book on the relationship between religion and affect. Mm -hmm. And one of the responses that that book got that I found very interesting was, people would say to me, sometimes favorably, sometimes unfavorably, yes, you figured it out. Religion is just about emotion. Um, Religion is the domain of emotion. Some people would say this as if it was a good thing. Some people would say it as if it was a bad thing. Religion is something to be dismissed. Um, But they they all took it as given that I was identifying something uniquely affective about religion. So this rubbed me the wrong way because it was not what I thought I was saying. And it was not the way that I interpret affect theory, which is much more expansive. I think that affect theory is actually trying to diagram something much more fundamental about the way we experience the world, which is that everything that we do is affective. Everything that we do has this grounding in um, emotion, in feeling, in experience, um, including things like science and including various formations of the secular. So I set out to write a book that would talk about the emotional dimensions of science, that would talk about the emotional dimensions of the secular, and in the process realized that there was an even more basic question that I needed to address, which was about the affective aspect of rationality itself. That's how I ended up structuring the book, was as a reflection on this philosophical question of how much we can see reason itself as embodied. You name your reflections on this cogency theory. What's cogency theory? Yeah, so uh, cogency theory was a term that I came up with to basically gather together all of these different approaches that I was exploring from a range of different fields, a range of different disciplines, all of which were reflecting on this relationship between thinking and feeling. So I was very interested in the word cogency because I've always been fascinated by the way we will say that something is cogent. What does it mean to say that something is cogent? What does it mean to 
identify something as a cogent argument. It doesn't quite mean that it's true. You're not necessarily mm. saying that you are convinced by it, that it has uh, that it has established itself firmly as something that you definitively believe. It means you find it compelling. It means there's something about that argument that draws you to it um, or that you find attractive or appealing in some way. So at some point I was meditating on this word and I decided to look up the uh, etymology of it. Um, I had assumed that cogency was related to the word, uh, uh, the Latin word cogito, like mm. I think, um, and, uh, and other sort of similar English words like cognition, um, cogitation, that kind of thing. Um, but they're actually completely different. I discovered they're actually completely different uh, uh, etymologies, uh, very different like branches that um, each of these words are on. So cogency is actually a combination of the prefix co, which means streaming together, and a very complicated Greek-Latin root word, ago, which means something like means a number of different things. It can mean something like force. It can mean something like uh, a kind of passage or a duct um, is literally what it means in Greek. Um, so cogency means something like these forces, these different elements are converging. They're coming together. Um, and that came to be the way that I found myself thinking about rationality as a process where all of these different forces are operating under the surface, uh, acting on each other, struggling with each other. Um, one of the cognate words uh, of cogency is agonism. Um, so I came to think of this as an agonism. It's an agonism of forces. It's an agonism of affects that is prior to rationality, but on which rationality rests. Rationality is an epiphenomenon of this agonism of forces under the surface. That's what I came to think of as captured by this term cogency. In the book, you bring cogency theory to a few different academic fields. Who are you speaking with in the book? The book has a number of different academic conversation partners. Um, one of the points that I make in the book is that the idea that thinking and feeling are interrelated is not a strictly new idea. It's something that's being discussed in a lot of different uh, contexts, um, a lot of different academic fields, but also a lot of, you know, just sort of uh, conversations that are happening in para-academic or non-academic spaces. Um, but it's also something that is still a kind of, uh, a kind of subjugated perspective. It's, it's not an idea that is, that is in ready circulation within conventional wisdom. Um, our common sense understanding still defines thinking and feeling as fundamentally separate. So part of the project with this book was in the first half, especially rehearsing where this uh, new approach to thinking and feeling that sees them as connected rather than separate has already been talked about. Uh, so this becomes the structure of the introduction in the first four chapters. In the introduction, I talk about it with reference to science studies and science and technology studies. Um, in chapter one, I talk about a few different European philosophers, all of whom are connected to Darwin in some way. They either influenced Darwin or they were influenced by Darwin. 
chapter two is about affect theory. Um, chapter three is about secularism studies. And I also dabble a little bit in the, uh, what's being called the post-critical turn in literary studies. And chapter four is about contemporary academic psychology. All of these are fields where the idea of suppressing the divide between thinking and feeling has been explored. Um, and I, I, the contribution of that first part of the book, as I see it, is to connect all of them together and to show that they are all part of a single conversation called cogency theory. Hmm. Now, in the book, you allude to different chronological moments in which ideas like this spring up. We have George Eliot reading and translating Spinoza, but you begin with Darwin. Why choose Darwin as this route? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, on some level, it was arbitrary. I think that it was, uh, there were a lot of different ways that I could have written this book. Um, in the process of researching it, I found a lot of sites where people were talking about disrupting the thinking feeling binary. However, I was particularly interested in Darwin for a number of reasons. One of them is that Darwin himself in his own writings is actually very thoughtful about how his own science and his doing of science is related to feeling. He understands scientific knowledge production as something that is connected to feeling rather than something that is fundamentally separate from it. Um, it you can see this in his autobiography. You can see this in his letters. It's something that is part of his own meta-reflections on the science that he's doing, is recognizing that there is a powerful driving role for feeling in the process. And this comes out in part from Darwin's own scientific conviction that human beings need to be seen as in continuity with other animals rather than as uh, fundamentally separate from other animal kin. Um, for Darwin, the upshot of this is that we need to be very skeptical of any of the identifying labels that we attach to human beings that seem to mark them as fundamentally separate from non-human animals. One of these is rationality. One of these is reason itself. Um, it's a common feature of the thinking feeling binary as an intellectual construct that it puts humans on one side and animals on the other side, um, in addition to all kinds of other political work that it does. Darwin's very skeptical of this. Darwin's always going to want to put pressure on any operation that separates human beings from animals because that's his life. Life's work is basically shoring up the argument that he makes an origin of species that we need to see humans and animals as in continuity rather than as separate. So I found dwelling on Darwin to be a very effective way of launching this reflection on how scientific rationality is itself shot through with emotions. On the other hand, Darwin is also misinterpreted. Darwin is also often taken up as a thinker who actually did radically reconstitute these hierarchies of human over animal or of some humans over other humans. Um, Darwin is often taken as a figure who created a form of science that was decisive in um, dissolving religious belief, um, which, you know, is not entirely wrong. Darwin himself is an agnostic, as he says, with very strong atheist leanings. Um, but the way that Darwin got picked up by certain versions of the secularization narrative, um, whether you want to talk about the Scopes trial, which I'm very interested in, whether you want to talk about new atheism, 
Darwin is always Darwin is always on the T-shirt. Darwin is always the figure that they're putting in the foreground as the uh, the strike force who's making this decisive blow against religion possible. And I wanted to unsettle that as mm-hmm. well because I think the the actual the actual implications of the way that Darwin is trying to get us to rethink uh, the human animal binary are much deeper than that. What does cogency theory teach us about science? I would say that cogency theory gives us a version of science, which I think is very recognizable to a lot of scientists, but is at variance with our sort of common sense, everyday understanding of science in which science is about a very complicated, mobile dynamic of finding evidence, persuading people, allowing yourself to be persuaded otherwise, rather than a machine for producing absolute truth. So when most people hear the word science, they think of science as being about the production of definitive truths. They see it as a machine that cranks out an idea which is indisputably true. You saw this with um, COVID, with the, mm. the science, the very rapid, um, very quickly evolving science around COVID back in 2020, when scientists in this network of laboratories and universities were trying to figure out what was happening. And they said various things, some of which ended up not being true. And that's now used as a weapon by COVID denialists, by other people who are trying to push back on mainstream science in some way. Um, they point to the missteps of science and they say, look, the scientists got it, got it wrong. The scientists had us wiping down our fruits and vegetables and the cans that we brought home from the grocery store for three months at the beginning of COVID. Um, and they were wrong. And the scientists no longer think that that's what we need to be doing. Therefore, all science falls apart. And the scientific consensus that has emerged is invalid because of these earlier missteps of science. That's a line of criticism that you can only make when your starting point is that science is a clockwork mechanism for churning out absolute truths. And so when science churns out an idea which turns out not to be true, that calls the whole scientific enterprise into question. What scientists think about science, by and large, in my experience, is that science is about evidence and persuasion. It's about amassing as much evidence as you can and then coming up with a theoretical envelope that most effectively distributes and analyzes the evidence that you have in front of you. So it's about this dance between theory and data that is never perfect, that is never absolute, but is never necessarily even complete. It's, it's an ongoing process, and we always need to be open to the possibility that some new data set will emerge and Newtonian physics will be dethroned and we'll realize that the picture is actually more complicated than we thought that it was. Cogency theory is a way of fleshing that out. It shows that the processes that people are using to make scientific knowledge are driven by evidence finding, but they are motivated by an emotional engine that makes that evidence finding possible and then allows for us to put the evidence that uh, the evidence has been that has been accumulated, the data that have been uncovered into a social space, which is also totally scientific, but which is also emotional. Um, 
the process of submitting your work for peer review or of talking something over in a laboratory at the end of the day, discussing your findings at the end of the day in, the, in a laboratory, or of having an email correspondence with a colleague on the other side of the world. Um, those are all processes that are both intellectual and emotional. There are areas where scientists are staging this dynamic of affective forces under the surface that is making knowledge production possible. You spoke about the engine of this coming together. And I think one of my favorite parts of the book is the, the noun that you use to describe this kind of transferable, this engine that, this engine that does much work and you called it the click. Mm -hmm. What is the click? Where can we find it? Yeah. It's uh, yeah, that's such a, an important question for understanding the book. Um, I came to think of click as an intellectual affect. It's one intellectual affect among many. There are lots of different ways that we feel thinking and that thinking feels, but one of them is what I call click. Click is a particular feeling that you encounter when you are confronted by an idea that resonates for you, um, an idea, a piece of information that fits in with uh, the way that you're already thinking about the world. Um, so we can see click in a very interesting uh, kind of artificial way uh, in contexts like games. Games, I think, are very often puzzle games in particular, whether they're you know, electronic puzzle games or literally like a jigsaw puzzle or something like that. They're games that are playing with click. They're harnessing this feeling of the little twinge of excitement that you get when something fits neatly with something else. It's literally the feeling that you get when two puzzle pieces fit together in a perfect way. Um, that's, that's a very visual, very sort of three-dimensional way of thinking about click. Um, but it's really, I would argue, something that's happening all the time. Uh, whenever we're confronted with new information, whether it's in our environment or in a conversation or in a book or a journal article that we're reading, um, if that information fits with the other pieces of the puzzle that we've assembled, we feel that sense of click. We've all had this experience of reading something or hearing something, and it, it just it feels right to us. It feels true to us. We, we get this little hit of exhilaration when we see this idea clicking with other things that, um, other things that we've discovered, other things that we, uh, that we know. So click is very important, as I understand it, for doing science. Scientists are always looking for this click. They're looking for these ways that they can expand their theories by attaching new parts, um, deepen their theories by finding more data that fit with the existing theoretical framework. It's also something that we're doing all the time um, when somebody is telling you a story about a friend and they tell you something that you didn't know and you say, aha, that makes sense. That explains why the last time that I talked to them, they blank. That's click too. It's, it's something that is present in all of these intellectual operations from the micro to the macro. The tricky part about click is that click is not necessarily a way of producing truth. Sometimes click is a very effective way. It's the only way that we can discover things about the world is to be searching for this 
feeling of excitement when things fit together. If we didn't have that feeling of click, we would never learn anything. It just learning would not be a thing that bodies like us do if we did not have this capacity for click. But click can also, um, as I suggest in the book, lead us astray. If we already have a set of prejudices or preconceptions or biases that incline us towards a particular way of thinking about things, and then we find a data point that is wrong, is objectively wrong, uh, but that fits in with this already skewed way of looking at the world, that will click and it will feel good and it will feel right. It will feel so good that we imagine that it is the truth. And that's partly why, as I suggest in the book, bad ideas, mistakes can become so deeply embedded in our mm -hmm. psyche. Psychologists call this confirmation bias. Um, I talk in one of the chapters about the mere exposure effect. There are lots of different words for this, um, but I'm anchoring it to partly what I'm trying to do in the book is anchor this mechanism for making mistakes to the same mechanism that allows us to come up with good ideas and to better understand the world, to show that it's the same thing, but that has been uh, positioned, oriented differently uh, within the landscape of knowledge production. So within that kind of, um, we, we, could, we, could, we could call it a moral spectrum of the good ideas and the bad ideas. You give us two, two examples, you give us science, and you give us misinformation. What is the distinction between science and misinformation? I think at the end of the day, we need to have a fundamentally humble, fundamentally pragmatic approach to science, which says that if science is not about the production of certainty, science is also always subject to being disproven. Um, that's why this, this is another one of these things where scientists have a particular vocabulary that they understand very well, but which is misunderstood in our conventional wisdom. It's why evolution is still referred to as a theory because evolution, uh, Darwinian evolution by natural selection, different evolutionary processes, um, the way they fit together, what they do, it's a theoretical framework that is extremely well substantiated. It's the foundation of all modern biology. Um, it's the foundation of entire fields like genetics. Um, but a new idea could come along like uh, the return of Lamarckian evolution with um, uh, serial endosymbiosis theory in the 1970s that refracts the paradigm and that adds something new and that puts a different backspin on it. Um, so scientists understand this very well, that science is something that always needs to be open. It's something that always needs to be susceptible to uh, new ideas. So I would say that the difference between science and misinformation is never absolute. Like we can never be absolutely confident that the science that's in front of us is true. We can't, we, we just, we don't get that kind of certainty. Um, and I don't lay this on thick in the book because I think this is being said very well in other contexts, but a vision of science as a machine for the production of certainty is just, it's, it's not what I'm aiming for with this. On the other hand, I do think that we can talk about science as science as a process, science as something that scientists do as a, uh, a proven ground. It's a place where scientists try to stage these intellectual emotions in 
especially effective ways in order to scrutinize the ideas, the data, the information that are being um, generated within scientific contexts to the most effective mode of study that they can be. Um, so one of the things that I talk about in the book is that science as a kind of ideal type, I'm not saying that this is what actual science looks like, although I think by and large it does. Science is about putting feelings in tension. It's about creating a feeling of excitement, a feeling of exhilaration that comes along with discovery, that comes along with making these connections, but also applying pressure to that, precisely because that excitement can lead us astray just as effectively as it can lead us to uh, a better understanding of the world. What misinformation often looks like, and I give the example of conspiracy theory, is taking only one half of that emotional equation, just taking the part that is exciting and exhilarating, just taking the ideas that make us happy, that make us feel good, that click or resonate with our existing biases, with our existing preconceptions, and not subjecting it to scrutiny, not listening when people try to put pressure on those uh, very same ideas, and basically using the rule of thumb that if it feels good, it must be true. Um, so I, I would say on the one hand, like there's no absolute distinction between science and misinformation, but there is a way that we can see science as a culture, as a, a set of disciplines, as a set of practices that has emerged to try to refine ideas as much as possible. And it does this by harnessing this emotional dynamic. So scholars of science and society have a few different, some very famous ways of describing this process of taking experimental data or observations and putting them together and maybe jostling towards the truth. And you engage with a few of the big theorists in the book, um, Kuhn being one of the most well-known um, theorists, especially outside of science studies. Will you give us an alternate thinker to think about the relationship between science and society? Um, who are um, they? Yeah, and why do you bring them in? Uh, yeah, so one of the things that I do in the introduction of the book is stage a kind of debate between Kuhn and Michael Polanyi, um, Hungarian-British uh, scientist, uh, physicist, philosopher of science. Um, Polanyi and Kuhn are often talked about together. Uh, there's a really interesting... Um, it's almost like a, a subfield, a, a body of scholarship that comments on the relationship between Polanyi and Kuhn. Um, in researching this, I found out that they actually had a very contentious personal dynamic um, that mapped onto their uh, intellectual dynamic, onto the sort of debates that they were having among themselves. Um, they're often seen as uh, of a piece. They're often seen as allies because they both call for a move away from a positivist understanding of science as defined by the production of truth. I, I know there's been a lot of interesting work on positivism that has complicated the idea that positivism can be flattened in that way, but I'm just going to use the cartoon character version of it for now. Um, but there's also a big difference between uh, Kuhn and Polanyi, as I see it, uh, which is that Kuhn is ultimately very coy about whether he thinks science is getting better. Um, I've spent a lot of time with uh, Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions, um, with the afterword. I think that he ultimately never really gives a straight answer, at least in that book, as to whether or not he sees science as getting better, 
or whether he sees it as essentially a series of self-enclosed whirlpools um, that move from paradigm to paradigm without ever actually getting a better grasp on the world itself. Polanyi is different. Polanyi is actually very confident that science is not moving in a linear fashion towards a better understanding of the world, but that if you zoom out, you can see that science is better explaining the world around us over time. Um, Polanyi loves uh, Galileo uh, and Copernicus. Copernicus and Galileo were right. They, they ultimately had the right intuition about how best to map the solar system that we find ourselves in. Um, and they chased it and they were determined, uh, Galileo in particular was determined to try to bring this new idea to the surface of the conversations um, that were happening in astronomy in his time. Polanyi loves that because he is convinced that science is actually capable of producing better understandings of the world around us, that it, it, it is moving forward, even if it's not in the directly linear fashion that the kind of uh, flattened version of uh, uh, the kind of conventional wisdom of science might happen. But what really upsets Kuhn about Polanyi's work is that Polanyi is convinced that one of the main mechanisms by which science does this is through what he calls the uh, intellectual passions, um, the set of emotions that go along with the doing of science. So he's got several of these, um, and I discuss all of these in turn. Um, some of these are uh, ways of talking about click. They're ways of talking about the excitement that we feel when we successfully generate a better understanding of the world that just fits. It just it makes a whole bunch of things make sense. And Polanyi sees that as an emotional process. Kuhn has no room for emotion. Kuhn is, is one of these thinkers. Um, I find this is actually very common in the humanities. It's this sort of macho thing that you get in certain strands of the humanities where to talk about feeling, to talk about emotion is seen as weak. It's seen as, as soft or as feminine. Um, and the further that you can get away from talking about emotion in your humanistic research, the more you're doing like the real stuff. In some ways, it's the more that you've uh, approximated this um, stereotyped view of science uh, by exactly by expelling emotion from your research. And Kuhn, is, Kuhn definitely falls prey to this. He's someone who just has almost no capacity to see scientists as feeling beings and the way that Polanyi introduces feeling, introduces intellectual emotions as a way of solving this problem of um, how scientists actually succeed at making better knowledge about the world, Kuhn just rebels against that. He just finds that horrific. Um, and that's, I, I work through that tension between those two thinkers in the introduction, uh, in part to set up cogency theory. Okay, Dominic, so if, if if what cogency, if one of the strands that kind of runs through what cogency theory teaches us about science is how this communal life of knowledge um, develops and the moods of that communal life, what is it teaching us about secularism? This other kind of communal life not unrelated to science. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, let me say first about the social aspect of science that what I'm proposing is a kind of supplement to social accounts of science, mm. uh, accounts that see science as fundamentally founded on its interpersonal quality. Um, 
I think that that is a very important insight. I think that it's a huge part of how science operates, especially contemporary science, which is profoundly social and profoundly networked um, with other uh, with other scientific bodies, with other actants. Um, I think that's a really important picture of the explanation. What cogency theory adds is that that social picture of science is itself emotional. The reason why that intersubjective uh, social dimension of science does what it does, it helps us build a more trustworthy, more durable set of scientific um, discoveries is precisely because that intersubjective space is a field of emotions where different scientific feelings are circulated. But I would also say there are a lot of circumstances within science where somebody who is not, we're always networked, we're always plugged into these other communities, but there are moments of scientific solitude that I think also need to be theorized. And I think cogency theory is doing that as well. You asked about uh, the relationship between cogency theory and secularism. Uh, this is another huge question, incredibly important question. Um, the most difficult part of that question is that the word secularism itself has all of these different um, definitional approaches to it. Um, so Charles Taylor will talk about secularism as one of his most important insights, as I see it, is precisely to notice that the word secularism is being used in these very different ways. Um, sometimes it's used to mean uh, a kind of procedural separation for political reasons uh, of the religious from the secular. Um, this is a way that someone like Talal Assad wants to use secularism exclusively as a political philosophy that separates um, the secular and the religious. Uh, sometimes Taylor notices secularism is used as a kind of proxy for what you might more precisely call secularization, the process by which religion disappears um, from the public sphere or from just a, a society or a culture more generally. And sometimes Taylor notices secularism is a more abstract set of background coordinates. It's a kind of set of cultural parameters um, that correlate roughly with this sort of loose category that we've invented called modernity um, in which to believe or not to believe or how to believe or what to believe is framed as one option among many, um, is framed as a, a choice rather than an inevitability. So cogency theory has a lot to say, I suggest all of this. I think that it, it interacts with all of these different conversations that are happening within secularism studies right now, all of these different angles. Um, in a variety of different ways. At the heart of it is that stories about secularization, all of these different versions of secularism um, in Taylor's sense, they all in some way rely on this thinking, feeling, binary intellectual construct. They all import this intellectual construct of seeing, thinking, and feeling as fundamentally separate, and then they associate it with the religion secular binary in some way. Um, it's funny because sometimes, of course, this is, uh, this is used, it's deployed in different ways. Um, this is where something like uh, the secular might be criticized for being disenchanted, for being emotionless comes in. Um, but it's also where a kind of triumphalist secularism, uh, the secularism of the new atheists comes in that says secularism is about 
associating ourselves as strongly as possible with feelingless reason, with making ourselves into beings of pure rationality that are able to expunge the emotional residue of our pre-modern religious uh, cultures and societies. Um, cogency theory just comes along and spins all of that around and says this thing that we're calling the secular is never non-affective, it's never non-emotional. Um, whatever it is, it is profoundly associated with operations of feeling. So I think three of the examples that you use to illustrate that are Darwin Huxley, the Scopes trial, New Atheists. And this little, this little group of three um, is something that's often paired together in um, science and religion literature. I think you're doing something very special with them. Why did you go through them? Yeah, it's exactly as you say. Um, this is a particular archive that has become very pronounced in the subfield of science and religion. Um, and I wanted to reread it. I wanted to put a, a new coat of paint on it um, because I think that there's, that for as much as has been said about Darwin, as much as has been said about the Scopes trial, as much as has been said about the New Atheists, I think a lot of it still is fundamentally missing this crucial affective dimension of each of these, um, each of these historical moments uh, drawn from the history of science-religion interactions. Um, that said, I also think that they are three extremely important case studies in the history of thinking about secularism, in particular secularism in the kind of third sense that Taylor uses it as uh, secularity. Not, not quite so much secularism as a political philosophy, although that's certainly in there as well. Um, but coming back to this question of why make Darwin the anchor of this, why, why have this project orbiting Darwin in the way that it does, um, Darwin changes the intellectual landscape of secularity. Um, and that's often seen by uh, figures that were around Darwin in his moment, like Huxley, um, figures who were responding to the aftermath of Darwinism, uh, like uh, we see around the Scopes trial. Um, I'm particularly interested in H.L. Mencken um, and by the New Atheists. They all see Darwin as, they all see Darwin as the, the neutron bomb of secularism. He's the, he's the weapon that comes in and makes this new fundamental secular order possible. Generally speaking, in secularism studies, there's a lot of wariness towards talking about science. Um, there's a lot of emphasis on law. There's a lot of emphasis on uh, literature. There's a lot of emphasis on cultural studies. Um, most of the scholars who are canonical in secularism studies don't have a lot of uh, interest in science. So part of what I wanted to do was not only to readdress uh, science and religion studies as a subfield, but also to readdress secularism studies and to point out the salience of these moments in the history of what I call scientific secularism, where we see this very distinct correlation between scientific development and um, secularity uh, in the history of science. I have two questions for you that will go a little bit more deeply into those chapters. One that lives in the realm of the more humanistic work and the other one that lives in the realm of the scientific texts that you are reading. And the first one is, what does Eve Sedgwick teach us about science? This is self-indulgent because you talk about my favorite essay of all time. Your favorite essay of all time is Paranoid Reading and yes. Rapid Reading. Yes. I, mine too. Yes, we're, <laughs> we're in agreement. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, Cedric is a fascinating thinker. She's just so multidimensional. Um, I think about, uh, to me, Cedric's book, Touching Feeling, is just a treasure chest. Like, it's it's six chapters, five chapters in an introduction, right? And they're just, they're all completely different. They all just run with these this core set of ideas in completely different directions, and they're all fascinating. Um, and so... Uh, uh, fertile for so many conversations. So definitely reading Cedric as a thinker of science is an unconventional thing to do. Um, but I agree with you. I think she has a lot to say to science studies. Um, Lauren Berlant had this great uh, line on Cedric. They said, uh, Cedric offered us a centralized epistemology. Um, and I, I love that. I named, I named the second chapter after that line in Berlant. Um, because it's exactly what Cedric is aiming for. She's trying to affirm the importance of seeing the way that we think as intimately associated with the way that we feel. Um, she's getting this from queer theory. She's getting this from Tompkins. She's getting this from a, a range of different sources. Um, but she's also doing her own very unique thing with it. Um, so I love uh, this passage in chapter five of uh, Touching Feeling, where she asks, what does knowledge do? The, what, what is knowledge not just as a kind of passive archive of information that sits in our brains ready to be uh, accessed and brought up um, whenever we need it, but what does knowledge do? What is knowledge doing in our embodied life, even when we, we think of it as this sort of passive reservoir of accumulated information, of ideas that we've acquired over the course of our lives. Um, and her answer, I think, she's, you know, she's Eve Cedric, so she's always, she's always speaking in this register of subtlety. Um, but I think her answer is that knowledge feels, and it shapes the way that we experience the world, in part because it's not just shaping the horizon of what we believe, shaping the horizon of what we think, but also shaping the horizon of what we feel. And for Cedric, what we feel is the heartbeat of subjectivity. It, it makes us the kind of uh, creatures that we are moving through the world and interacting with the world in various ways. So that idea that information feels, that science feels, is, I think, this incredibly important contribution that Cedric makes to a theory of scientific knowledge production. In chapter four, uh, the chapter titled Feeling is Believing the Try and Brain, Near Exposure and Cogency, um, you say that you work with, or to use your exact word, you summarize, you say that on 100, um, articles from the field of affective neuroscience and experimental psychology to show some support for cogency theory from within experimental science. You say you're engaging with them with a Latourian flavor, which is a distinct kind of summary. But why worked with scientific articles as a humanist? And really, to ask you even more broadly, how do you think humanists ought to work with them? Yeah, um, this was a very unique feature of this book. Um, I uh, had a grant with my colleague, uh, a colleague of mine, uh, to basically consult with uh, psychologists and to try to get a feel for what is happening um, in academic psychology now around this question of the relationship between thinking and feeling. So we, uh, we worked with two separate um, academic psychologists. 
they both built reading lists for us of uh, contemporary literature. Um, and uh, I worked through that and this chapter was the product of that, uh, of that um, uh, directed reading that I was doing. Oh. So the goal with this was to move on from what I certainly have always done when I've engaged with science in the past in my own scholarship, um, and which is very prevalent in the humanities, which is to basically use pop science um, to go to uh, these sort of big mainstream books that are being produced. Um, they're written by practicing scientists. Um, they're summarizing fields of science in an accessible way. And they are presenting the scientist's perspective um, in a context in which the scientist uh, takes themselves off a leash and is able to speak very affirmatively, to speak very assertively about trends within um, their particular scientific field. So pop science, I think is great. I'm really glad it's out there. I'm glad that people are writing these books. I'm glad people are reading them. I'm glad humanities scholars are citing them. Um, but it's also ultimately a limited way for it's a skewed way for the humanities to engage with the sciences, um, in part because I think there's a misunderstanding about what pop science is, what a pop scientific book is doing, what the genre of a pop scientific book uh, actually consists of. Um, and I think just, I mean, in a nutshell, there's a tendency to assume that a scientist is, when they're writing a popular book, is summarizing a field of study um, in a way that reflects the consensus of that field of study. But what's actually happening is the editor of you know, Penguin or Random House or whatever is talking to this scientist and saying, you need to throw caution to the wind. I want you to make the most strident, confident argument that you can um, in which you assess your field uh, in this kind of global way um, and I, I want it to be contentious. I want it to be controversial. And I think that I think that humanities scholars that read pop science books often miss the tendentiousness of this book. These books, they miss that they are trying to they're trying to sell books. Um, they're not uninformative. They're not valueless. Uh, but they're taking they're taking a line that is especially strident. Um, that that scientist, when they were speaking to other scientists, might not necessarily take. So the goal was to look behind the curtain and to get to the conversations that are actually happening in the peer-reviewed literature, um, which are more subtle, which are more delicate, um, which are closer to the evidence, which is another uh, feature that I wanted to build into that chapter was presenting the evidence. Um, of how these particular conclusions were arrived at rather than just presenting the conclusion and then saying like, boom, rubber stamp, it's science, you have to believe it. Um, I wanted to show how these uh, scientific ideas were made. That said, one of the things that I found in doing this research, uh, going into the psychological uh, peer-reviewed journal article literature, was that there is very little contention about the claim that feeling and thinking are interrelated in contemporary academic psychology. My reading of what I found was that it's more or less taken as a kind of background given at this point, that feeling and thinking are in a very closely bonded relationship. Um, what the exact parameters of that relationship are is still a matter of conversation. But I wrote the chapter essentially 
I hope, to transmit a fairly uncontroversial consensus, which is that the, uh, the divide between thinking and feeling is just not taken seriously anymore among academic psychologists, um, certainly the ones who are working on any dimension of affect. They, they, they see very clearly that the, uh, the affective and the cognitive have these very deep interrelations. Um, you can talk about that experimentally by uh, looking at any number of studies that have been done <clears throat> that diagram this relationship between thinking and feeling. I chose to zero in on the uh, literature on what's called the mere exposure effect. You can talk about it neuroscientifically. Neuroscientists make a very simple argument, which is that once upon a time, we thought that the brain was literally structured neuroanatomically organized in such a way as to have a thinking zone and a feeling zone. Um, this is what uh, the triune brain theory um, is one of the most prevalent versions of this. If you've ever heard somebody talk about the reptilian brain, um, that's a holdover from the triune brain theory, which said that there are essentially shells in the brain that correlate to different structures and um, ipso facto different uh, different um, different mental faculties, thinking and feeling. This idea was so successful right up until the 1970s that it's now seeped into our popular discourse. And outside of academic psychology, lots of people still think that there are structural divides in the brain that map onto the thinking and feeling divide. Um, contemporary neuroscientists have totally trashed this. Uh, oh. Lisa Feldman Barrett calls it a zombie idea that refuses to die. Um, their argument is that the theme of the last half century of neuroscientific research has been connectivity. Rather than detecting structures in the brain, um, the emphasis is now on tracing networks. And these networks are all related to each other. Um, and they're all jostling together. They're all, they're all wrapped up with each other, such that the idea that thinking and feeling have a neuroanatomical correlate, um, an actual uh, structure in the brain that divides them, is just not taken seriously anymore. So in, on page 132, towards the end of this chapter, uh, you say, quote, cogency theory sets out to bridge humanistic and scientific perspectives, highlighting resonances across the disciplines. And you return to this theme in the last paragraphs of the book, when you write that humanists can help scientists, quote, correct errors scientists make when they borrow concepts from the world of, of humanistic thought. You show us many moments when thinkers, which would include philosophers and scientists, are bridging humanistic and scientific perspectives, sometimes to, um, to poor ends in the case of what you call racialized reason. Um, and other times you kind of give us in this tenor of hope to maybe more rigorous, more humane ends um, when we're talking about some kind of serious communication between disciplines that is more oriented towards the truth. Can you talk about an example of, to use this word from your book, racialized reason from your either historical examples or other work where you see this emerging? And then perhaps another example where you see more serious work being done because sciences and the humanities are being bridged? I think that 
one of the frustrations that motivated this book was my sense that there are still a lot of humanities scholars who see scientists as enemies. Yeah. Um, they see them as complicit with, uh, I don't know, um, capitalism or racism or sexism or some other uh, structure of domination or oppression. Um, there's, uh, it, it, I don't know, I, I find it very troubling. I think, uh, I think that we need a better platform of communication between uh, scientists and humanists, broadly understood. Um, I think that there's also a huge amount of goodwill. I think that a lot of humanities scholars and a lot of scientists really want to build this bridge. Um, and I'm hoping that this book will be a plank in that bridge. Um, but I do think that there is still a lot of lingering hostility. Um, I think that it's a holdover from uh, uh, early 20th century um, uh, European ideas about the ontological separation between the humanities and the sciences that saw them as fundamentally just based on different metaphysical ideas um, going all the way back to Heidegger. Um, I think that there's an element of uh, kind of residual 70s, 80s, 90s science wars um, stuff still in the mix. Um, and I also think that there's just a lot of, uh, in a non-judgmental way, ignorance. A lot of humanities scholars who just do not know what scientists are doing and do not have, um, sort of see scientists as the other, as uh, uh, the sort of fundamentally separate intellectual project that we don't have any obligation to be interested in, that we couldn't possibly be interested in, that is fundamentally divorced from what we do. I think of the humanities and the sciences as a continuum. Um, we can talk about zones on this continuum that are more sciencey or more humanistic. Um, but ultimately, I think that there's a lot more, there's more interaction between these zones than we realize, and there's more potential for interaction between these zones than we realize. Um, so talking about uh, scientific racism is a great example of this. Um, the history, uh, history of science folks who are working on scientific racism have done astonishing work in um, telling the story of how this happened. Um, and... Scientists, for their part, I think, are deeply concerned about the legacy of scientific racism and extremely invested in doing everything they can to expunge the legacy of scientific racism. Um, Stephen Jay Gould is a great example of this. He's a trained evolutionary biologist, um, but dedicates years of his life to writing The Mismeasure of Man to call out the, uh, the history of scientific racism within his field, within psychology and other uh, related fields, um, and does so at this meeting point between history, like real archival historical scholarship, and science, actually trying to understand how um, scientific processes led to this distorted view of uh, race. Uh, race. Um, so I think that there's more potential for conversations like that, but I also think that they're happening and it's a matter of amplifying them. Um, it's, it, this is not at all to say that this process hasn't already started. Does that get at your question? It does. You end the book in your conclusion with the example of climate change. What does cogency theory teach us about climate change? Yeah. Uh, cogency theory is about what's cogent. That means it's about persuasion. 
at, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the epilogue really was an epilogue. It was something that came to me as I was writing the book um, and was thinking about the urgency of the uh, uh, threat that climate change poses and what cogency theory as a project had to say about that. Cogency theory, I came to realize, is about persuasion. It's about the way that two people can look at the same piece of information and come to very different conclusions. Um, One person might believe it, another person might disbelieve it. One person might be inclined to accept it, another person might be inclined to reject it. That's that's a a picture of cogency. That's that's a, a continuum of cogency in which a particular piece of knowledge is more cogent for some and less cogent for others. Why? The story that cogency theory tells is that we need to look at the affective background that has led up to the moment where people are reasoning through a particular piece of information. So climate denialism, as I see it, is something that we can study using this cogency theory perspective. Why is it that the incredibly effective scientific consensus, uh, just the absolute, this is a scientific consensus that has arrived at an absolute gold standard um, within the field of scientific knowledge production. Um, why is it that there's still so much skepticism towards this, uh, towards this consensus? I think cogency theory tells us a lot about that. It helps us understand how um, people have been mobilized into particular communities that are more or less uh, trusting of particular scientific um, ideas and perspectives. It tells us a story of how a particular idea like climate change might be so disturbing that it becomes very difficult to wrap our heads around it. Um, people will talk about this in terms of bigness, that the that climate change is just too on too vast of a scale for us to meaningfully confront it. And that's one of the causes of climate denialism. There might be some truth to that, but it's missing the emotional dimension of the story, which is that it's not just a big problem, it's a horrifying problem. And it's hard for people to come to grips with pieces of information that are just objectively that scary. And cogency theory, I think, helps us map that. It helps us tell that story about why this particular idea might have an an especially arduous uphill swim in terms of gaining acceptance. There are all of these different ways that we can approach this specific problem by adding the dimension of feeling to it, by asking about how this particular idea feels to different bodies, to different constituencies, to different communities, um, and then better trying to map how it is that we can increase the prevalence of this idea, how we can make it easier for people to wrap their heads around this problem and respond to it in a meaningful way. I think towards the end of this section about what the lies and distortions of some kind of climate denialism, you write, I think one of the, to me, heaviest statements in the book, which summarizes, I think, the heaviness of the book. When you say that, quote, academics for our part can reaffirm a commitment to the truth essential to scholarship, end quote. And then a little later you say, we can't just teach our students the impossibility of certainty over and over again. The urgent task in front of us is learning how to move with confidence through a world where certainty is impossible, but resolute action is vital, end quote. And I call this heavy 
because of the, I think, volume of the people, of scholars um, over the last many centuries who have been addressing this question of how it's possible to speak with something like truth, if it's possible to learn the truth. And what I want to close with is to ask you, what would it mean for the we in that sentence, academics, to commit themselves to the truth? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I like your word heavy for that. Oh. I, uh, I think that in the humanities in particular, especially among people who kind of come from my world, theory land, um, philosophy, uh, continental philosophy in particular, um, there is a lot of fascination with problematizing truth. This is, this is what Kuhn you know, spends his career um, fixating on. It's how can we problematize certainty? How can we problematize truth? And I think that there's still a lot of ink that is spilled on that, on reaffirming over and over again the impossibility of certainty. There's a reason for that. It's, there's, there's a very powerful structure of conventional wisdom. This comes back to what we were talking about earlier about the, the kind of common sense view of science, the street level view of science as a machine for producing certainty. And that needs to be troubled. That needs to be... Um, that needs to be massaged and complicated um, in order to come up with a better picture of how science is producing knowledge. But I also think that the fascination with problematizing certainty has become inert. Um, it's, it's reached a point where it is rehearsing the same themes and motifs over and over again about pushing back on certainty which is locking us into inaction, um, mm. in part because it's turned, it's created a kind of permanent philosophical uh, puzzle that we keep solving over and over again. Um, we keep going back to this epistemological uh, problem and playing with it over and over again, um, rather than moving forward. Um, I'm not an expert in this, but I've been, uh, I've been really interested in calls from uh, North American indigenous scholars to move on from a kind of epistemology for epistemology's sake and to attach to a set of pragmatic concerns, a set of ethical concerns that don't just dwell on the epistemological questions, but also try to produce a horizon of action. So there's a really interesting tension that emerges from that. If we are trying to undermine certainty, if we are trying to say, look, we cannot move with absolute certainty in the world, how do you make the jump from that moving train to the moving train of, and yet we have to act and we have to be talking about action among ourselves. We have to be talking about action in our writings, in our public scholarship. We have to be talking about action with our students. How do we get them from certainty is a hoax to, and yet we have to move in effective ways to interdict this incredibly, this staggeringly dangerous problem that um, we confront. I worry that a lot, of, uh, a lot of efforts to address this have remained stuck at this epistemological question. Mm. Um, I think that within the European tradition, there's a really interesting um, uh, avenue of going back to pragmatism, American pragmatism, which is also going through something of a renaissance right now as a way of theorizing this within the Euro-American tradition. 
how can we be, how can we wrap our heads around uncertainty and yet still act and yet still move forward um, with ethical conviction at that. Um, that's, that's a sort of conversation that I, I want to accelerate. Um, and that's why I uh, put that at the end of the book. I think that's a good place to end. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, amazing questions. Thank you, Dominic. Thank you for listening. As always, gratitude to the incredible Matt for his audio engineering magic putting this piece together. And I hope you'll join me in congratulating him as he sets off to begin law school this week. And thank you for listening. If you want to hear more from Donovan, you can find a list of his other books and articles on his faculty page on the University of Pennsylvania website. If you'd like to hear more from me, you can tune into my forthcoming audio episode with the incredible Lukey Ellsberg about what we talk about when we talk about the microbiome from the Machines in Between project at machinesinbetween.com. In your research, which of the chapters surprised you the most when you set out to write it? Ooh, what a great question. They all surprised me in varying ways. Um, but I will say one thing that really startled me was working through the material on disenchantment for chapter three and realizing that the way disenchantment has been interpreted for the past hundred years um, coming out of Weber is, as near as I can tell, totally inconsistent with what Weber actually intended. Um, the, uh, there's the sense that we have now that disenchantment means the removal of feeling. Um, I don't think Weber intended that at all. I think that Weber was actually trying to talk about science as a particular uh, configuration of feeling in sciences of vocation. Um, but the idea that disenchantment is about the evacuation of feeling um, is something that came much later. And partly what I call for in that chapter is returning to Weber's science as a vocation as a kind of foundational text in thinking about secularity and disenchantment, um, precisely to reaffirm that the secular is affective rather than that the secular is something that is about this um, diminutive feeling. Thank you. I'm going to edit this out, but I'm asking if you can keep your quarter running just so that we have it. I was actually so curious about why you were why you were talking about disenchantment, mm -hmm. which is, I love that answer so much, that clarifies it, because I think in what you're describing and feeling in science, I could imagine a world in which you were engaging with, instead of the problem, enchantment, disenchantment, you might deal with the problem of theory practice in science. Hmm. Where's the tension there? Or you could have dealt with something like the difference between history and truth in the way we narrate. And I was really, I was, while I was reading, I was wondering why return to that conversation of secondary sources. But I think you just answered it for me because you find promise in that essay. Let's go back to, to, to Weber. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. that one of the things that I argue in that chapter is that there is, disenchantment is sort of, so much of the energy in secularism studies right now is around, especially coming from religious studies, is around Assad's strict definition of secularism as a political philosophy that seeks to procedurally separate the secular from the religious in order to generate all kinds of different social and political effects. Um, 
And one of the things that I've noticed is that that dovetails very, uh, very beautifully with religious studies interest in the same question coming from the other side around the politics of how something gets characterized as religion. Um, so there's a lot of energy around those definitional questions right now. Um, but one of the things that I point out in the chapter is that there is also a lot of work that is being done within these foundational thinkers, um, Assad and Taylor in particular, about enchantment and disenchantment. Um, in Taylor especially, a certain baseline theory of disenchantment is you can't actually launch Taylor's project without some kind of sense that there's a thing called disenchantment in the world and that it's a problem from, from Taylor's perspective, or at the very least, it's something that needs to be um, confronted. So one of the things that I wanted to do was show that this word disenchantment, which Weber, as near as we can tell, coins um, in the late 1910s, was not designed to work in the way that we tend to use it now which is to uh, be a synonym for the removal of feeling. He means something very different by it. It's an epistemological orientation, but that epistemological orientation has an affective profile to it. It, it is its own way of feeling through the world. Um, and that introducing that as um, a, a kind of provocation, I'm, I'm interested to see if there's pushback on that reading of Weber. Um, from other scholars of secularism and disenchantment. Uh, but interesting that in introducing that provocation seemed like a necessary move to me. Okay, thank you.